Hello, I'm Steve Richards, and this is the weekly podcast, Rock and Roll Politics. I thought if it's okay with you, and of course in this context, there's not much you can do about it, I'm going to reflect a bit after the wonderful Jeremy Thorpe drama, which ended on Sunday night, on Thorpe and the kind of lessons that um, are still relevant today about Jeremy Thorpe, not so much the drama, which was, as far as I could tell, pretty accurate and rather brilliantly put onto a TV serialization. But about what we can learn from Thorpe, the reality, I remember Thorpe quite vividly and liked him. Didn't know him personally, but as a very young kid, my early memories of politics, I must have been 10 or 11, was the February 1974 election. And therefore, one of the first national politicians that I came across from watching some of the coverage on television was Thorpe, because in that election campaign, he was the most mesmerising performer of the national leaders. Ted Heath was Prime Minister, exhausted by the trauma of the three-day week which had triggered the election. Harold Wilson had been a long-serving Labour leader and was exhausted. And there was Thorpe, the leader of the Liberals, this exuberant figure. He conducted the whole of the campaign from his constituency because it was a marginal seat in the build-up to the election. And he held daily press conferences in that primitive technological era by being on a battered old screen in London where journalists asked him questions, answered with great wit and style, and then he would go out into the constituency, leap over fences, greet people with great vivacity. And then I remember the drama of the weekend after the uh, election result where there was this hung parliament. Um, Labour had won a handful more seats than the Conservatives, although the Conservatives won more votes. And famously, as portrayed in the TV drama, Heath tried to woo Thorpe into forming a coalition. The closest Thorpe, a very ambitious figure, got to power. It didn't happen for many reasons, but one of them must have been in the back of Thorpe's mind. Heath had offered him, with great irony as it has turned out, the Home Office. Thorpe would have been Home Secretary in a Conlib coalition, a coalition that would have proven to be, in the light of what we now know, far more fragile a coalition than the Conlib coalition that was formed in 2010. Anyway, it didn't happen. But that weekend, the thoughts racing around Thorpe's mind must have been extraordinary. So close to power, and yet being blackmailed by uh, Norman Scott, or he would see it as blackmail anyway, and not being able to reflect on many of these things with many people at all, apart from this eccentric entourage as reflected in the TV drama. But there is something else about Thorpe that followed very quickly after the February election. And it's on YouTube, and it's worth a look. 
it was an hour, I think, maybe half an hour, in which Thorpe was interviewed by Richard Crossman, the former Labour cabinet minister. And it's an extraordinary half hour of television for lots of reasons. Crossman was terminally ill when he carried out the interview. He coughs a lot during the interview and he died very shortly after the interview. But it captures the moment of Thorpe at his peak. He had done well in the February campaign in terms of votes, phenomenally well, not in terms of seats. But there he was, although not in a coalition, wielding some power in a hung parliament. Hung Parliament is the dream context for Liberals. And I think he comes out of this interview extremely well. He not only responds to Crossman's questions, but shows a great curiosity about Crossman's own views on politics. And, of course, Thorpe was fascinated by political theatre, the stage of politics, but that didn't mean he was entirely fascinated by his own performance alone, although he was clearly deeply fascinated by his position on the political stage, but he was fascinated by others. He had a curiosity, and he was a star. I was talking the other day with Norman Lamont about Jeremy Thorpe for various reasons, including this series, and he told me that he had had a look at the Oxford Union live debate that was televised at peak time during the 1975 referendum campaign. And Thorpe was one of the main speakers in favour of Britain staying in what was then the common market. And Norman Lamont, of course, who's a Brexiteer, said to me it was worth looking at because Thorpe was by far the best speaker. And indeed, it is worth looking at for lots of reasons again. Partly that um, I think it was on ITV at peak time. That wouldn't happen now. They'd put it out at midnight, I suspect. And it was true. Norman Lamont's point was true. Thorpe gave a brilliant argument for staying in. It was witty, well-structured, and an example of a good speech in a context which Thorpe clearly relished, the debating chamber at Oxford. And then, of course, it all started to go terribly, terribly wrong. But it put me in a weird position when, um, in 1979, his trial loomed. He remained an MP. He was forced out of the leadership when the allegations about Norman Scott surfaced. But he remained an MP and fought his seat in Devon in 1979 and lost the seat. And my last memory of him, and I remember staying up and watching that 79 election programme, the results programme, was Robin Day, the then main political interviewer, speaking to Jeremy Thorpe a few minutes after he had lost his seat in Devon. And Robin Day said to Jeremy Thorpe, Mr Thorpe, do you think the fact that you are about to stand trial accused of conspiracy to murder played a part in your defeat tonight? And Thorpe, without hesitation, replied, put it this way, Robin, I don't think it helped, which showed a gracious wit at a point of almost unbearable pressure for any human being. You've lost your seat and you're about to stand trial. And 
although so much of the evidence famously stacked against Jeremy Thorpe, I remember feeling thrilled for him and ever since that he got off, that George Carmen brilliantly defended him and being very nervous for him as the verdict was awaited. And even though the evidence points to a cover-up to some extent by the various kind of establishment institutions and that it remains the most extraordinary story, this attempt to one way or another kill off the male model Norman Scott and ending up getting his dog. I'm pleased he never went to jail, even though many people think that's where he should have gone. And what followed was a kind of terrible Shakespearean tragedy, really. And incidentally, of course, you have sympathy for Norman Scott and some of the other extraordinary characters that were featured in the BBC drama and some of whom are still alive. But the um, Thorpe follow-up was tragic. He briefly was given a job with Amnesty International, but the staff rebelled. They couldn't abide the idea that this figure was uh, in a senior position and he was forced to resign. And he never really got anywhere again. I, I've spoken to various Lib Dem leaders about Thorpe and they tell me that um, even towards the end of his life, he wrote to them or asked them directly to put him in the House of Lords and none of them felt able to do so for obvious reasons. And of course, he, this great, vivacious performer suffered terribly from Parkinson's disease. So it was unquestionably a tragedy on many levels. But there is, amidst this sudden renewal of interest in Jeremy Thorpe, because of that brilliant TV drama, and incidentally Hugh Grant's portrayal, is an incredible recreation of Thorpe. It, 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 it's like a figure coming to life again. He's captured the walk and the almost dance as he walked that Jeremy Thorpe had and the facial expression with, which looked as if he had almost a smile permanently even when in dark trouble. And the graciousness as well, that he had a sort of grace and elegance. But I think there is a wider lesson, which is that performance, though by no means the only part of politics, is an important part. And the 1970s, and indeed, to some extent, the 80s, were crammed full of great performers, and he was one of them. And it was a means by which some could engage with politics. The instinct of so many about politics is it's a turn-off, it's dull, or these people are in a world of their own, etc. And in a way, Thorpe, with what was going on behind the scenes, proves that they were, to some extent, cocooned. But he could communicate, and he could generate interest, and he used wit as in that exchange with Robin Day, as a, he was naturally witty, he was a good impersonator and all the rest of it. He used wit as a political weapon. And he didn't have much 
going for him in February 1974 in terms of a party which had shrunk to a handful of MPs after the 1970 election. And yet he acquired a significance through the art of performance. And when you look at some of the current generation of politicians, for example, cabinet ministers, and indeed a prime minister who cannot frame an argument about what they're trying to do with Brexit or much else, you see how important a weapon it is that Thorpe had and quite a few other big figures from that period had. So there was this remarkable saga, and yet there was something else there as well that shouldn't be entirely forgotten. One of the weird things about a drama of a person who lived relatively recently is that you are bizarrely aware that they themselves would never have contemplated that they would be portrayed a few decades later on peak time television in such a way. And it is very thought-provoking. Anyway, great series, better than I thought it was going to be because it is a drama that is both vivid and breathtaking, but there are layers to it and there are darker, sadder elements to it, some of which were conveyed, although I read that Norman Scott is unhappy with it and his portrayal. But um, the life of Thorpe is, is, is an interesting one and it's going to revive a lot of interest. I mentioned the Oxford Union debate during the 1975 referendum. And that debate, if you look at it on YouTube, and indeed other YouTube clips from the 1975 referendum, exposes one of the myths in relation to Brexit. A lot of people on the Brexit side of the argument, in the build-up to the referendum and since, said that the 75 referendum was a distortion. It didn't cover issues such as the threat to British sovereignty, to the parliamentary sovereignty. It's not true. The Oxford Union debate focused much on where power lay in the context of the then common market. There was a peak time debate, also brilliant mesmerising television, between Roy Jenkins and Tony Benn during that 75 referendum, of which I would say about two-thirds was all about sovereignty and where power lay. It was the great Tony Benn argument against Europe. But it was a complete myth that these issues were not addressed in 1975 when British voters voted by a vast majority to stay in. So much has changed since then, but... The next few weeks are going to highlight the preposterous complexity of Brexit and what I think will fascinate historians for centuries to come when they look at this period of British history, which is why Theresa May triggered Article 50 without even starting to get cabinet agreement, let alone wider agreement, for the most fundamental elements of Brexit. What kind of trading relationship we have with them, how we deal with the single market and all these other factors. And that she is currently 
battling away with her own cabinet to get some kind of agreement in advance of the June summit later this month and indeed in advance of a whole series of um, Commons votes on these issues, the customs union, perhaps the single market, as a result of various Lords' amendments. We know the basic answer, that she triggered Article 50 under pressure from Brexiteer MPs, a relatively insecure Prime Minister, or she felt insecure, I don't think she needed to, uh, but she did, being a Remainer, a half-hearted Remainer herself during the referendum. And so she felt compelled to trigger Article 50. She thought it was a compromise that she hadn't done it right away. But in postponing the internal debates, she's having to conduct them now in a much more seismic context because that clock ticks. It is remarkable that a British government prepares for Brexit in a few months without yet an agreed position on the customs union and without any answer to the Irish question. There was a lot of stuff in the Sunday papers, interesting stuff about the no deal being an Armageddon prospect. But I think no deal is not on Theresa May's agenda. It could happen by mistake, but it won't happen by intent. She will contrive one way or another to get a deal, but she doesn't know yet what form it will take. It's an astonishing state of affairs, and I think there is a strong case for Parliament, to use the phrase of the moment, to seize control. One of the brilliant things about the internet is you can get Hansart in 10 seconds, any debate from any period of British politics. And I was looking at that famous Norway debate in May 1940, when the House of Commons basically seized control. And by the end, it had finished off Neville Chamberlain. And at the time, MPs weren't quite sure what the consequences would be. They just had reached the conclusion that Chamberlain must go. The Labour leadership reached it. Some Conservative MPs had reached it. And others had as well, former Prime Ministers like Lloyd George. And they kind of, in this debate, brought that about. They weren't at all sure who they wanted to be the successor. Some wanted Churchill, many didn't. But they just realised that enough was enough with the Chamberlain Premiership. And I wonder whether this British Parliament can feel as assertive and as strong to conclude that this government's Brexit strategy, is strategy is not quite the right term for the incoherence, which is partly understandable because Theresa May is trying to do the near impossible in in very difficult political circumstances, Uh, but whether they call it and they will do so without quite knowing what would follow. By that I mean if they want the single market to vote for it, they want a customs union to vote for it, if they're against the deal, if there is one in whatever form it takes, to vote against it without quite knowing what the consequences would be. Well, that's what happened in Norway in May 1940. Not in Norway, following the Norway invasion in the British Parliament. What is clear is this month will be a period of great political activity and drama, and that will continue into the autumn. The party conferences are clearly going to be dominated by this issue.
there is so much else that should be sucking up political energy, but it will be Brexit. And this is a hung parliament, so anything could happen. Jeremy Thorpe, if he were around, would be for sure on the side of the softest of soft Brexits or a second referendum. Not that that is necessarily the um, advocate that you would be looking for in terms of great political figures from the past. But anyway, well done to the BBC. They're making quite a lot of mistakes in other areas at the moment. But that series was a triumph and um, has got me and indeed many others from what I can tell from Twitter and reviews and newspaper articles thinking about Thorpe and that extraordinary period of the 1970s. What a, if you think this decade is bonkers, that one was too. Anyway, there's some thoughts. Did you note the segue from Jeremy Thorpe to Brexit? You probably did. It was probably very, very clunky. Anyway, look, thank you for listening. I uh, just wanted to say that I'm going to be up at the Edinburgh Festival for the last two weeks of the festival, Rock and Roll Politics 2018, a different show every day, and tickets are available on the uh, Edinburgh Fringe Ticket website and I think other websites too. So if you're at the Edinburgh Festival for the last two weeks, it'll be great if you came along. It's going it to be a lot of things going on in these shows where basically the audience is going to take control. So we're going to recreate the world of politics by not knowing quite what form each show will will take. But um, those tickets are on the Edinburgh Festival Fringe website. And of course, the Politics Festival is on at King's Place. Uh, talk about Brexit. John Major is opening the Politics Festival later this month. It's Friday, last Friday, Saturday and Sunday of June. And we've got uh, kind of all sorts of people, Nick Clegg, Chukarumana, Jeremy Hunt. We've got Liz Truss, uh, Emily Thornbury, many great political writers are coming along. Rachel Sylvester's coming along to put the case for a new political party. I think some of us might challenge that. Anyway, Glastonbury's not on this year, so it's the, the festival for political junkies. So I hope to see you at King's Place and in Edinburgh. But thanks so much for listening today. Please subscribe if you haven't, and see you next week. Listener.